Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? Welcome to episode 120 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Owen from washedupemo.com, and today we welcome Charles Cardello from Bifocal Media. If you were around in the 90s and had a live video of a band like Braid, or you had Michigan Fest, or you picked up a VHS of Actuality of Thought, Bifocal Media were the ones that did it. Charles has gone on to do a lot of amazing things from those early days of filming some of the best bands from the mid to late 90s. I bought their VHS tape of Actuality of Thought, which had live songs from amazing bands like Braid, Sleepy Time Trio, Jejun, The Get Up Kids, The Promise Ring, to name a few. Look it up on YouTube, because back then, there was no YouTube. So if you want to understand what we're talking about, go check that out. We also talked with Charles about filming an entire crazy fest and how we'll never see the light of day. In the early days, those that had cameras documented a lot of beautiful things that we take for granted with our smartphones. Charles and Bifocal Media did an amazing job of documenting a time and understanding this was something needed by bands and the scene. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters. You keep the lights on this podcast. Thank you. And finally, thank you to those that have bought the book, Anthology of Emo, Volume 1. Amazing. We're working on Volume 2 as we speak. More information, anthologyofemo.com. This is Episode 120 of the Wash Up Emo Podcast with Charles Cardello from Bifocal Media. Making a video like that um, then was a lot. And I think you guys were, uh, you know, figuring it out. That was your first release, uh, correct? It wasn't like a record label idea. It was just kind of like, I made BMX videos. And the town I lived in became like this mecca for BMX in the mid-90s the late 90s like i think at one point there were like 40 pros living there so i made these bmx videos and i was booking shows and stuff and i just wanted to make a music video that was kind of like a bmx or a skate video you know where everybody kind of had a part and then you know we did all the little weird artsy fartsy skits in between just to make it interesting to us but what was crazy is at that time, like it wasn't like everybody had access to a camera or making those weird things. Like what was there? Did you guys, I mean, I'm assuming it was a VHS or mini DV then. It was, I think the actuality, I think this all um, really, I think it's, it's high eight. Oh yeah. And there's some, there's some like um, eight millimeter film in there, but, I was a, 
I was a design and media production student. And Brad, the other founder of the label, was also a a student of the media arts. And um, we both, we lived together and we worked together. And I was filming tons of shows. So I had probably like a hundred different bands filmed. So we were like, why don't we just, you know, why don't we make this? music video and give it out with a zine or something, you know, it wasn't really supposed to be like a big release, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah. How did you figure out, you know, finding someone to make, uh, you know, having distribution or what were some of those things that you figured out that it wasn't as easy as just hitting upload on YouTube? So we, we made the video because we worked at a, we both worked at a production company in town. So we had access, but when it came out, you know, this is pre, like, like the internet was still new. Like we didn't have a website yet. I don't think I had an email address. Um, we made it and I, we were booking so many shows that I was just like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll give them out or sell them at shows. You know, we'll do a zine and it'll come with a zine. Um, and then when it was done, it was, we had a little premiere party and people kind of freaked out over it. So we were like, Hmm, maybe we can, we can make more of these and, and sell them at shows or, you know, once it was done, we were like, we might as well package this. Like we do the BMX videos and maybe some people at shows will buy them. And we did as far as like distribution goes, I think, I think lumberjack called us. I think at that point we had only, we'd only done, I think like 80 videos was all we could afford to have duplicated. And lumberjack called us and, we're like, we want to buy 300 of this video that you made. Yeah. And I was like, uh, I kind of panicked because one, I didn't, I didn't really know. We didn't have the money to get those made. And two, it was kind of like, it was kind of way more than we were comfortable with, you know, like, I don't know. I was of this weird mind that you weren't supposed to make money on punk rock or whatever at the time. So it freaked me out a little. Like we just had no idea how to be a, a company that published media at the time. I mean, I, I knew about BMX because I would make the video and other people would distribute it all over the world and I would just get a check. Like I didn't have anything to do with it past the making of the movie. Uh, but with this one, it was all us. And Lumberjack pretty much you know, bankrolled the beginning of bifocal media. That's rad. In the beginning. It's also scary because we didn't, we were freaked out and, you know, we didn't have contracts. Everything was like, I booked a lot of those shows and they were all like friends and handshake agreements over, you know, lots of beer and things like that. I don't think anybody expected it to sell like it did. Did anything come from that? Did braid or promise ring or get up kids say anything after, or we ended up working with most of the bands, I think afterwards on some level. Um, so people weren't pissed. I think the only weird thing that happened, I can't even remember. I think somebody's label called and was weird about it. And then I think a lot of people bought it because they were like, they had heard the seven inch or whatever. And then all of a sudden there was all these bands that, that were, these were all bands that most of them toured a lot. So they were popular and most of them were kind of the ones that stood the test of time, you know? Like people still are amped on these bands now, 
So um, it just kind of snowballed. And I think most of the bands at the time were stoked because it was like going on tour. I think it probably probably helped a few of the bands um, because we sold so many of them. And, you know, a lot of people watched this video and probably got introduced to some of these bands. So I think most people were stoked on, on the fact that we did it and that, you know, it was decent. Um, I think, I think we, we spoke with everyone, um, after it came out and everyone seemed pretty excited about it. And we went on to to work with God, a ton of those bands on other projects. So, which I think you said earlier about kind of coming up from that. You just wanted to help. You realized you were putting on these shows. You could film them. You had the capability. You were at a, a place where you were working that you could, you know, do more with it. It was almost like you were taking all the things around you and you were like, I can create something. Exactly. We just kind of wanted to document our little living room rock scene, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I knew no one had really made, I think there were a few, like, I remember a video with Enyaq Arrow on it and like a veil or something that somebody had done, but it was super low key, like VCR to VCR type thing. And then all of a sudden I had access to all this equipment. So I was like, well, we can make a, you know, we can make a really nice video and kind of showcase you that when I look at it now, I don't, the production value doesn't really hold up, but the performances, all the performances definitely do, which is kind of cool. Yeah, if, if uh, and this, this whole thing is on YouTube, right? Someone's up. Yeah, somebody it, right? put it up. Otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't have watched it probably in fifteen years or something. Because <laughs> it was only, it was yeah. only VHS. So we never did it on DVD. I've always had my copy. I always had my copy. Cool. I think I, I think I might years. need to get a dub from you because I don't think I still have one. <laughs> uh, I'll be happy to dub it um, actually and uh, give you the the file. I actually think I have it already done. Um, what well, we let's mention a few of the bands. I mean, one of them pops out to me that blew my mind, um, and I think this was at the do um, at uh, what the Sleepy Time Trio Lizard that was at the. That was at Lizard and Snake. Yeah, in Carborough. Yeah, that one. And you picked the perfect song. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> the um, let me see. there was like three bands that played that. Year. I think the first band in the video was Four Hundred Years, and the last band in the video was Sleepy Time, before the credits. And that both of those are from the same show at Lizard and Snake. I think Mile Marker played that show too. It was Mile Marker, Four Hundred Years, and Sleepy Time Trio. It was like a Love It showcase or something. And uh, Sleepy Time Trio, I met those guys when they played in my parents' garage in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. <laughs> so I already knew them. So I'm like, I think I was in high school when that when that happened. So I booked shows in my parents' garage in high school, or maybe it was like the summer after my first semester or something, but. I knew them from that. Four hundred years. I knew Ash, the drummer, because he was a BMXer. So I knew him from that. Um, but yeah, that that when we were going through all the footage and everything, that was the quality on that worked out best for some reason. I think those cheap cameras had really good condenser mics, and where oh, I was, they totally did. Yeah, better than like my pro cameras that I have now. Um, it's almost like they put the worst possible mics in them. So you have to buy like real audio equipment, but the, um, 
just where I was standing made that in their, you know, the way they were, it was luck that it worked out so well, because I think that's kind of like the best footage of that band I've seen from there, you know, that period. Without a doubt. Um, what about the, uh, promise ring? Promise ring. That's also at lizard and snake. Um, went to that with a camera and stood in the front. I did not know the promise ring when that came out, talked to him after like, Hey, we're making this video. And you know, like at the merch table or something and everybody's just kind of like, sure, do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, which, you know, there's no, like there, this is 97, I think, you know, and, and they're playing at a place like lizard and snake that maybe held a hundred people. So it wasn't like anybody was making a lot of money yet. I think everybody was just excited to get exposure and be in something. And I also, they probably heard something like that every time they played. So I don't think it was till after it came out that we, you know, talked to them again about it. And they were like, shit, this is, you know, it's bigger than we thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I would say, uh, what about Jejun? Jejun, Jejun was, we went to see someone else and Jejun opened. I think Jejun and the Get Up Kids is the same show in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was like near the beach. Um, and Jejun, I, it was another one. Like I just, they were, they played like, three songs and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to record this band because they were great. Um, and then same thing afterward, I was like, you guys want to be in this video type thing? Like we went to film the get up kids and we rolled camera on Eugene, I think just because we, we were blown away and they were great. Um, and then, and then uh, I was going to say the piebald, where was that venue? That was a backdoor skate park in Greenville. That's what it looks like a skate park. Yeah, it was in Greenville, North Carolina. And it was kind of like, um, that was kind of like our, like college hangout. Like we would go in there at the, uh, one of the owners said that we could book shows there. So we just started booking everything there and we would go in there, you know, and skate and ride bikes and drink forties, you know? So they played, those piebald played there. They were on tour with Kaven. So those are both from the same show. And I think my roommate and I booked that show and they got, I think they had a show get canceled the next day. So they ended up staying with us for a few days. And actually it's funny. Eugene or, um, sorry, piebald's bass player is play piebald singer or bass player. Travis is playing in Kaven on that tour. So when you watch cave in on that video, it's actually Travis from piebald on bass. Uh, oh, I didn't catch that. That's awesome. Oh, you know what? I just remembered that you bring that up. The, when the video, when lumberjack bought all these videos, like, um, so, so we got like, uh, cave in sent us like a big box of stuff and a thank you. And like their new record that wasn't even out yet. We sent them like a like a pre-release version or something, and they were we were just like stoked. And I think the next day we got a call from the guy who ran uh, Piebald's record label. I can't remember that. I think it was um, what was the label they were on? 
Big Wheel. It was Big Wheel Recreations. And, uh, excuse me, hold on. I'm drinking a LaCroix, so I'm full of gas right now. Hold on. <laughs> it's like way too much caffeination. There's too much. Yeah, but, um, no, no, we got a call, and uh, it was the guy who ran Piebald's label, and he was freaking out, like, you can't do this. And I was like, oh, it's so weird, like, I, like I panicked. Like uh, at the time, I remember thinking like the first thing I thought was like, "Oh, someone's gonna do a bad write up on us and heart attack, and like we're gonna be banned from the scene or something." You know, like I was mortified that uh, somebody was unhappy with what we did or whatever. So, um, it, which was also weird because they stayed at my house for a few days. I think we had watched all the footage and everything together and picked the song. It was. And then, like the next day, I got a call from the band apologizing, and it was it was just weird. <laughs> it was cool. I was like, "All right." So it was like a brief panic. Like we almost, I think, pulled all the copies from Lumberjack and just said, "Let's not do this." Because it- what's so funny that you say that is like that's you know the equivalent of today of like a you know a tweet storm. You know, all these people, you know, flipping out that right. they did something and there's all this. But it's like you were worried about getting a shit thing and heart attack. Right. Like a zine that people had to wait for. Like you were waiting for it to happen. Well, we just spent like, we spent like a year on this and we really didn't like, we were, we didn't think about money or distribution or anything like that. You know, so we were just, we had like all of our like creative energies tied up in this thing. And then you know, to get that was like scary, but at the end of the day, he was just looking out for his, his people. It's not, it wasn't like a big deal because it was dissolved before it even like really became a tangible situation. But it was to us at the time, I was just like, God, I don't think I slept at all. I was terrified. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really that big of a deal, but you know, to a, to a, to a, to a, yeah, to like a, a 20 year old kid who, you know, it's like immersed in this scene or whatever. It's a big deal. What I want to bring up too, because I love it because it documented the time that I was in North Carolina. And on the podcast, I mention the state a lot because that's where I saw a bunch of the shows. Um, and I was in college and I had, you know, plenty of time and cheap gas and driving around and going to see shows with friends. I, I'd been, I'd lived in a bunch of places. I've seen shows. I've seen other scenes, um, that late nineties time, I mean, it, I look, I actually have these books of my college years where it would be like your Monday through Friday kind of thing of like when your class was and when you had to do, people put all these on their phone now, but it was like these little books and I wrote every show and I remember looking at them when I was home one time because I saved them in a box and it was crazy. It was three to four nights a week. It wasn't just the local band at the bar. It was Mr. T experience, uh, face to face, uh, uh, get up kids. And then, you know, sunny day real estate, like all in like the same week. And I, I mean, you lived there and I think I'd like to have somebody else kind of affirm that. I think that was a special time because of where North Carolina was between Atlanta and DC. There was a lot of shows and there was a lot of great college communities that, these were happening. Yeah, I think the college thing is probably like the, you know, you bring a bunch of young creative folks into this, into the triangle, Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. And then, you know, you had Merge there, so there was like a big history of this for indie rock in that area. 
And yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I booked so many shows. Greensboro, (laughs) Winston, High Point. Yeah. Even like, well, every town had like a couple of really neat spots. And and, in Greenville, where I was, was just like, kind of like, um, really Southeastern, you know, I got a, I got a LaCroix again. Hold on. <laughs> it was a bad I'm idea. Never been so, to LaCroix before uh, <laughs> a phone interview. Um, <laughs> especially when someone's recording it. Um, no, I mean, I, I guess I didn't really, I didn't really think about it at the time because it was all I knew. I figured that kind of thing was happening in every city, you know? So, I don't know. I just did my thing. I never, I never really, um, I never really like sat back and looked at it and said, wow, because I just thought this was everywhere, you know? But when I started going on tour with bands that I was putting out records for and stuff, you know, and we would play these towns, uh, I would see that it wasn't the same. And that's when I started really appreciating it more. When you were doing the videos, especially for actuality, you kind of said earlier that you were just kind of doing it, but did you have any idea that it would have as much life as it did? No, not even close. I mean, I would, I was, I remember being like really excited about the bands that were in it, seeing it and uh, maybe talking about it in interviews or something, you know, like that was huge to me. Um, and I, until somebody put it on, um, put it up on YouTube a couple, a few years ago, I, I thought it was pretty much dead. You know, I didn't have any more copies of it. I wasn't selling it on the website anymore. Um, I just, you know, we weren't going to do it on DVD. So I just, I don't know. It, whoever put it up kind of brought it back, I think, which was cool that people still cared about it. And that's when I actually started hearing about, uh, how many people were into it. I mean, we sold a lot of them, so I guess I should have figured people were buying them. But, you know, it was all through Lumberjack and Abolition and all of our distributors at the time. So, And then a few other videos. I know you did a label, which I want to talk about, or you're doing a label, but I also want to mention, you did Whistle of the Missile, which I had forgotten about, and that was more bands like Converge, Ladder Back, 12-Hour Turn, Engine Down. But then you had submissions for those little interludes, which I thought was really, really cool idea. Yeah, I think I just, um, at that point, like, I think enough people had seen the first one where when I, like, mentioned it to, when I met people and they mentioned they were in the film and stuff, I just brought up that I was doing a compilation where I wanted to include a lot of other people's work, um, like indie films and stuff. And I kind of took the ones that were that were appropriate in length, um, and we, you know, at that time I think Brad had already moved to LA, so I made that. I think I put most of that together myself. Brad has a film in it, but um, yeah, it was just the same idea. I just wanted to include more people the second time around, and I also was thinking that it might be cool at some point to do a, like a video magazine. So that was kind of a test run to see how much participation I could get from other folks who were into this kind of, who were into film and who were also into underground rock. And that was 2000, right? I think it was like, name, um, 
it was either 99 or 2000. Yeah. It wasn't too long after the first one, because I think a lot of the footage that's in the second one was actually shot around the same time that we shot whistle of the missile or that we shot actuality of thought. We didn't mention braid because I wanted to bring it up for killing a camera. Talk about that. I mean, the braid, you know, again is pretty prolific. Um, and I think them coming out with this at that time was a pretty big deal. Yeah, it was okay. So Braid, I think at that point had just released uh, their second LP. Um, might have even been right before, but that that shows at the same. It's at the same venue that G um, June and the Get Up Kids play that. It's just like a few months before, and they're playing downstairs. Whereas it was, it was just like a like a. It was like a head shopper. It was like they sell like bongs and stuff. And even and then somebody involved was like, oh, "Can I book shows at your space?" And they started doing these shows. But you, you got to keep in mind where this scene was or whatever. I think that the room Braid is playing in probably held forty people max. So, and this was their tour, you know, like <laughs> for their record release. Uh, it wasn't like it, you know. Even when we, they did the reunion stuff, they were playing to five, four or five hundred people, and that was like, holy shit, you know. Like they they played like living rooms and you know tiny clubs uh, most of their career uh, the first time around and you know I liked their record I didn't you know they had a bunch of comp tracks and stuff and they had that Frankie Welfare Boy record out which I loved like I was obsessed with that record uh, Jay who Jay Holmes who later came on and ran the label with us he I think bought that LP and turned me on to, to them. So when we found out they were playing, we went and I brought the camera and filmed it. And same thing. I was just like, Hey, I'm making a video. You want to be in it? Sure. You know, it was, <laughs> like I said, I don't think it was, um, it wasn't like, I need you to sign this contract. I'm going to play off this huge video. It was, <laughs> it was very <laughs> casual. I mean, how did the killing, how did the killing a camera uh, come about? Um, Todd uh, Bell from the band from Braid called and said that they were breaking up and he wanted to we gave bands uh, the actuality of thought it, the cost it, took, it cost us to get them produced like we didn't make any money on the band's copies of the record of that video so he called me and asked for he wanted to buy copies for them to sell up their last shows. And that's how I found out that they were breaking up. So I think I was, I worked that out and, you know, had worked everything out to have those duplicated and shipped to him. And then I hung up and then like, I told Brad, I was like, yeah, Braid's breaking up. They're playing a few last shows. And I think it was Brad that he was like, dude, we should, we should make a movie about the last five shows. And, uh, I think I called Todd back right away. I was like, let's make a movie about the last five shows. And he was like, okay. And we did. <laughs> that's that's uh, like that's the birth of that idea. And then I, Jay, Brad, and I flew to Chicago with a bunch of gear, and pretty much just like got drunk and rolled cameras the whole time. And what you see is what <laughs> happened. And then we get then we edit. You know, we got back and spent like a year editing it and stuff. But. LaCroix, hold on. And you ended up doing a, you ended up doing a, you got another 
LaCroix. You did a you did a DVD for that a few years later too. Yeah, we did that. It did really well. Um, then in two thousand four, um, two thousand four, I had a lull between because at this point I was doing a lot of work for other record labels, video work, and putting out a lot of records. Um, we had a lull, so I called Todd and I mentioned that. I wanted to put it on DVD and I wanted to make, you know, make it special and kind of do a, where are they now and use a lot of footage that we didn't get to use in the, you know, the first edit. And, uh, so I went and did that and came back and worked, started working on it. And then, um, I think that was kind of a spark for them to do the reunion. Um, I might be wrong on that, but I, th- I think they that kind of got everybody back together. They saw that they all got along. Um, we had fun. We had, we had a lot of fun filming the, the where are they now interviews and doing the. We did a we did a commentary for the, the first movie, and just hung oh, out for like you know, four or five days and had fun. And they realized they could all get along, and that's what made them decide to do the reunion stuff. Wow, you doing the sort of the going back and interviewing a Ben again got them back together. Uh, I mean, they could have been talking about it a before, but I it. think that was kind of a test. Them just all getting together and hanging out. That's what I, I could be wrong, but I think that's how that's how it worked out. And then, of course, they did cool. the the reunion tour, which was awesome because it was kind of like a support tour for the DVD, which worked out amazing mm-hmm. for us. You know, I totally remember that. I remember the flyers and the. By then, I was way over like being scared of getting paid, so I was really stoked that they did that because it really helped the DVD. And then I wanted to mention Michigan Fest. Oh God, I forgot about that one. How did you forget about Michigan Fest? Let me list off some of the bands for everybody while you're searching as you're listening to this podcast. Uh, let's see: Aloha, uh, Casket Lottery, Coalesce, Constantine's, Crooked Fingers, Death Cab for Cutie, Dillinger Ford, Dismembered Plan, uh, Haymarket Riot, Hey Mercedes, uh, Mile Marker, Owls, Planes Mistaken for Stars, Rye Coalition, Small Brown Bikes, Sweep to Like Johnny, Ted Leo. I mean, Hot Snakes, just, just a few. Hot Snakes, just a few. Yeah. Um talk a little bit about Michigan Fest and again this was a this was this was like I feel like was this two DVDs? That was just one. We crammed it, it all into one. one. So that was put on by a record label called Makoto and they had done it a few years prior. I got a phone call from the the guy who ran Makoto saying that he wanted us to come and document this fest and when i saw the lineup I, we were just like oh god yeah let's do it you know brad and i flew in my friend mike lithcott who ran a website a photo website at the time now he's like a big web developer we all flew out and with gear and for this we had like contracts and everything like we were over there were so many bands and by then they were most of the bands were pretty popular you know so we did we did it like really official this time we had like real audio and lights and stuff which you know compared to you know like actuality of thought that was a big step it was all multi-camera so we had like my friend tom that i grew up with we brought him along to shoot so like uh yeah, we just shot the fest and hung out and brought cameras everywhere. 
um, Mike Lithcott was kind of really good at getting up in people's vans and asking silly questions about Van Halen and stuff like that. So when we got back, we just had this trove of footage. I mean, I we taped every song for every band that played, you know, so I've got this Arc, a huge archive of amazing footage that someday I want to put up online. Maybe I want to do like a bifocal TV web, you know, website where we just put shows on that we've shot. I've got probably four or 500 shows. So yeah, that's how that came about. And it, and then we came back and cut it all together. And like a year later it came out and that did really well for us. I think it was like, I think it was like listed in, uh, there was a big website at the time that was like the main dealer of music on the internet for indie rock and stuff. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was enormous. Um, but yeah, they like it, it sold really well, which was awesome. And we gave all the bands like 10 for free and then gave them copies at cost after that. And a lot of the bands help us get the video out there too. So, and then you also, um, in, you know, the video stuff, you started doing a label. We just had connections for making the video, the first video. So we, we didn't even have a bank account yet. So we spent all that money putting out records for our friends' bands. Uh, I think the first release we did after actuality was a seven inch for the ladder back. And this band called Legend of, <laughs> excuse me, Legend of the Overfiend, and those sold out really fast. So then we did a full length for the latter back, and that did really well because they're the last band in the actuality of thought. Like they're playing in the credits in my living room. Um, that did really really well. Um, I don't know. It's, look at the website to see what we what we even did back then. What have you done since? Like, have you uh, continued to make videos? Have you continued to, um, you know, try to do those passion projects along with things to pay the bills? What, what have you been up to since? Started doing tons of work for um, for other record labels. We, we got commissioned to film a lot of festivals back then. I think we did um, the Love It DVD. We did uh, V-Fest in Florida couple times we did the crazy fest we actually made uh, an entire crazy fest documentary that's sitting on my hard drive why isn't it out we got well we got commissioned to make it by initial uh by andy rich from initial they paid for all the work paid for the editing and then just folded as a label and that was that and so it's sitting on my uh computer somewhere can i can i put it out (laughs) If you want to deal with all those bands, you can put it out. It's all yours. All right. We sh- <laughs> oh, you we work for Atlantic. You can right. probably make it happen. <laughs> no, this isn't for Atlantic. <laughs> uh, we'll talk when the podcast. No, no, we'll talk after the podcast. I actually have something that's totally related that might help. So uh, There was probably, like, I'm not going to say any names or whatever, but I think there was probably, like, maybe four bands that played the one, the first, the one that's done that was really, like, into you know like like i was a fan of i mean they're all they're all huge bands <clears throat> but i it was hard for me to kind of go in that direction where i was like i want to put this out because i would have been doing it just for the loot at that point because i only liked a few of the bands so that's why i didn't pursue it any further but when i look at it like i saw a tidbit, tidbit uh, a tidbit of it the other day on a backup 
And I was just kind of like, man, it's a shame that the kids who dig this this stuff can't see this, you know? Like, it turned out really, really nice. It cost initial a lot of money, you know? And it, they probably would have made it back pretty easily. But they he just got tired of, you know, doing the label. So it ended. So you were doing DVDs and things for and movies for... Yeah, we were just getting we were getting commissioned to do um, lots of other work, and then we did a video magazine called Automatic Magnetic. We did like we sold ads and we collected submissions and we did indie films. What years were that? I think that was that was right when I moved from Greenville to Raleigh, so that had to be two thousand one. But we only did one, and then I just got it was just me at the time working on the label. And I just didn't have time to do another one. It's a shame because it, it would have been interesting to see where it went. Um, but the first one, I think, has um, has interviews with a couple filmmakers. It has like it has like ads and stuff in it, you know, like commercials. Um, Super Chunk is in it. Um, Party of Helicopters, Super Chunk, Kurt Blocky, um, Mile Marker is in it. The Saint is in it. Um, so yeah, and it's like interviews with the bands and, um, you know, a song or two by each band. And then like, there's an interview with the filmmakers and pieces of, it's pretty much like an underground culture, you know, magazine. And and it was kind of, it was kind of a modeled after 411, the skateboarding magazine. And we did, we did one, it was done, like it did all right. I just didn't ever make another one. <clears throat> I started another one, but just didn't finish it. What have you been up to recently? Recently, I've been like, I think around, I don't know, like five years ago, we published a few books for this comic artist, Brian Wallstreet. Uh, he did like the seven seconds walk together, rock together cover. And he did like a col- He did like a comic, every issue of uh, Flipside and maximum rock and roll. And he was kind of a big deal in like the letter writing era of 80s hardcore he played drums in that band scared straight um, then he played in Palvo and a bunch of other stuff we were publishing books for him and he was working at a grocery store and he hated it and i was and he's fr- and he had this huge uh kind of artistic profile you know so it's like man you know you know he knew more people in the music industry than i did um, I was like, why don't you, he's one of his best friends is uh, Buzz from the Melvins. So I was like, why don't you ask Buzz from the Melvins if uh, you can do a shirt and we'll do the shirt like a, like a music release. We'll split it with them. It, you know, we'll either give them a percentage of the merchandise or a percentage of the uh, profit. And then I'll split everything with you. So we'll split everything three ways basically. And uh, so he drew something pretty cool and, cleared it with Buzz and we did a Melvin shirt and then uh, I think it sold out in like three days you know this was after you know Facebook was already a big deal so it spread pretty quickly I was like all right here's a check for you know two thousand bucks or whatever thanks thanks for the drawing and then uh, he called me one day he's like hey you want to do a Descendants t-shirt they're down to do it to do a shirt so we did the same thing for the Descendants and then it kind of snowballed and I think we did like, I got to the point where I was doing more shirts than I was, you know, records and stuff. And then we moved to Asheville 
from Raleigh. And I think at that point, I took, oh, I took a job as the director for an ad agency. You want to get that, like a, like an adult job or whatever. Um, and I did that. Keep in mind, I had been doing like corporate, like freelance work and stuff. I, through that, I got this job as a director of, a, of an ad agency and did that for two years. And when I left that, I was like, there are no jobs like that in, in Asheville. And I, you know, at this point I had a kid and a wife and stuff. So I was like, gosh, I have to figure, we either have to move so I can get another like adult job or I can tap into the shirt thing. So since around three years ago, I've just been doing these limited edition t-shirts with bands. I think we've done like 120 shirts at this point. Like we've done shirts for tons of bands, Descendants, uh, Dinosaur Jr., Germs, uh, just God, so many of them. And I've been, and that kind of that kind of snowballed into this thing where it's full time gig now, and that all came from music connections. Now we're working with like nine different uh, visual artists and illustrators, and like I said, I think we're on like hundred. We're on shirt one twenty one at this point, and that's wow. been pretty fun because people, you know, people don't like people can't steal a shirt off the internet. You know, they can't download it. Yeah, I always <laughs> said that. I've said that for years. You cannot download a t shirt. Well, you can bootleg the shit out of it though, because I've. I've issued yeah, like a hundred. That takes a little effort still. Yeah, you have to like do something. But yeah, it's 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 fun. Uh it's fun to meet these people. Like we've done like we just did a circle jerks t shirt, um swerve driver, um got just like we're working with like the bands that I got that I got into when I first discovered punk rock, you know? Like eighties hard. Isn't that funny full circle? Yeah, it's really strange. So it's, so I'm still kind of starstruck when I talk to these people on the phone. And we did a we did a dead milkman shirt and I was just kinda of like, Oh my God. Where can it go from here? <laughs> like I just I, I mean, I love that you I mean it was you taking a camera and shooting at the lizard and snake and making relationships, being friends, people calling you, seeing what you did. And that came from creating. That didn't come from, you know, talking shit on a message board. We all did. But maybe, you know, it was you were creating and putting something out there and people were getting stoked on it. And you just did it because you saw this void. And I think um, that was a really cool thing. And look what it's led to. You're doing a shirt for the dead milkman. Yeah, it's it's a weird bunch of dots to connect. But uh, yeah, I mean... If you if you're cool to people and you do you know you're you take pride in your work and you kind of own it you know like then it leads to cool stuff um, that's you know that's my take on it it works out um, you know and now you know, of course I have to do stuff for loot because I have two kids and a wife and everything so that's a part of the equation but you know it all started just. You know, I, I worked for probably 10 years for free just because I had to. Like, I just loved it. Like, I just needed to create that stuff. And, you know, I think it's pretty cliche for an artist or whatever, but, you know, it, it leads to cool stuff sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it just leads to being broke. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
Hello, Washed Up Emo fans. Thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years, or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and for this current episode you're about to hear. I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume 2 was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shettle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted Volume 1 so you can order both. Check out the DIY publishing at anthologyofemo.com.